Would you stand with me as we read? From Mount Hor, they set out by way, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Israel after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The word of the Lord. We're in the midst of a sermon series entitled, How the Cross Works, which is examining how our salvation is accomplished and what the benefits of that salvation is. If we were referring to this in systematic or historical categories theologically, we would call it theories of the atonement. And so in week one, we considered Christus Victor. That is the Latin name of the approach to understanding the cross that emphasizes that in the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and the principalities and the powers of darkness. That's how the cross works. Last week, we considered uh, penal substitution, 
as in uh, Jesus taking our place in our penalty. Uh, He takes our place in our death, and he takes our place in going to hell on our behalf. And so how does the cross work? The cross works because Jesus is our substitute. Today we're focusing on the notion of healing, or the lens of healing. Scripture spends a great deal of time talking about the atonement through terms of sickness, human sickness, and the healing that Jesus brings in relation to that sickness. And so what we're seeing today is the cross is effective because it heals. But that is a challenging uh, notion, understanding that and its implications. You don't have to think too long about the number of people that we may know who struggle with sickness, who are oppressed by some kind of suffering and are not being healed. And so we ask, well, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about uh, Jesus healing in the midst of the cross? And don't underestimate the emphasis that the New Testament places on healing. Almost 25% of your four Gospels are healing stories. Almost a quarter of the Gospels are about healing. And when Jesus gets up to introduce his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, what does he do? He reads from the Isaiah scroll, a passage in which prophesies about a Messiah who will come and give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And this is the Messiah who has come on, on the ground. He defines himself by the healing that he brings. But again, we rub up against this lack of healing. What does it mean that Jesus heals, and how are we supposed to experience it? To uh, help you to struggle with that question, you could consider the story of a couple that live in the Northeast, Martha and Mark. Uh, Martha describes the beginning of their very challenging season began with a small muscle twitch when Mark was 48 years old, and within a month, our doctor diagnosed the cause as a terminal illness, ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. We had been married 25 years and had four children. We had always been an active family, so Mark's quick physical demise was devastating. When Mark got sick, I fell into a black hole of despair. Mark recounts the onset of his ALS this way. I played sports in my younger years, and I always hated sitting on the bench. One day, just after my diagnosis, I cried out to God that I thought I was being pulled out of the game when I still had something to offer. To worry, though, Mark and Martha prayed, asked God for healing, and Mark was healed, and everything was great. Wouldn't it be nice if that was the way the story went every time? How often, do though, do we pray and there isn't healing? The story doesn't go that way. And indeed, it didn't go that way for Mark and Martha. I'm just saying it would have been lovely if it had. In fact, we live in a world in which we identify all too readily with Wesley's words to Princess Buttercup. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. So, what do we have at the cross? Healing or something being sold? And to answer that question, we have to wrestle with two realities biblically. One is the nature of sickness or understanding sickness biblically. And the second is understanding healing, understanding healing biblically. So first, let's wrestle with what it means to be sick in the Bible. We have a story of sickness in the Old Testament. The people have sinned. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. But they're tired of wandering in the wilderness. They're tired of the bad food. They're tired of a lack of water. And so they complain. And God, as a result of their complaints, sends a plague of snakes upon them, the bite of which is poisonous. And the result is death. Uh, Many 
are dying as a result of the plague of snakes. Well, why has this plague come again? Come upon them? Again, because they have sinned. In verse 7, they even acknowledge as they're repenting to Moses and to God, we have sinned. The sickness, the illness, is a result of the sin in which they have engaged. Now, if we were to pull back a bit, we would see that sickness, particularly in the Old Testament, is often the result of sin. This should not surprise us. God actually promises in Deuteronomy that when Israel will be disobedient, they will be sick. He says, I will visit upon you disease and illness and sores as a result of your disobedience. In the Old Testament, sickness is often the penalty for sin. Now, is that always the case? No, it's not. All you have to do is think of a place like Job, in which his sickness, all that comes upon him, is not the result of sin. It's the result of a different story being played out with divine intention that Job is not aware of. Now, both of these realities play out in their own way in the New Testament. Right? Even in the New Testament, we see sickness being the result of sin in various places. Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, and they're struck dead. In 1 Corinthians 11, why is the church in Corinth sick and suffering? Because they're sinning at the Lord's table and not sharing it equitably. Does that mean that sickness is always the result of sin? Absolutely not. Right? In a number of places, Jesus will actually contradict that idea. At one point, the, the religious leaders come to him and say, uh, the sick person, what's the deal? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, neither he sinned nor his parents sinned. Uh, but this is the best part. Jesus says, uh, go and sin no more, uh, lest something worse befall you. Right? It's not the result of sin, but it could be the result of sin. This is a biblical reality. Right? Now, the first thing I, I feel compelled and responsible to say is, if you are sick or suffering, you have to at least ask if it's the result of sin. There's no way around that biblically, right? To say, to at least go to God and say, am I suffering uh, as a result of some sin or disobedience? Now, that's far more the case in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. And sickness and suffering in and of themselves change in the way that God uses them remarkably between the Testaments. There's a great pivot that we have to understand that occurs at the cross in understanding uh, sickness and suffering. Um, and part of that is even anticipated in the Old Testament because sickness literally is not just the result of sin, but sickness is also a metaphor, a, a form of language to talk about the brokenness of this world. Right? And so uh, Isaiah is a good example. The prophet Isaiah in the beginning of his book uh, writes or speaks to Israel from the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Now, the important part of this passage in Isaiah is that Isaiah is not speaking of literal wounds. He's speaking of the nation as a whole and their condition in sin. And says, it's like you're bruised. You have raw open sores and nothing is helping because you keep being committed to moving in a direction opposite to God's intentions. So we've seen that sickness can be the result of sin literally, not necessarily. We've seen that sickness is a language to describe the world broken by sin. But the other thing we have to note in the Old Testament, which is really quite remarkable, is that there is only one source of healing. 
In ancient Israelite culture, and this is very notable, there is no healing class. What do I mean by that? If you look at Mesopotamian culture or Babylonian culture or Egyptian culture, there are entire classes of healers to which you would go. You know, think of kind of an ancient witch doctor. If you were ailing with something, you would go to see them. They would perform their rituals, and you would hope that you would receive healing. That person doesn't exist in the Old Testament. Right? You could go to a priest to be diagnosed with something and then put outside the camp. You would go to the priest in ancient Israel if you had been healed and needed to know what sacrifice was appropriate to your healing. But you didn't go to a priest to be healed. There's only one healer in the Old Testament, and that is God himself. We see that in the course of our story. If the people want to be healed, God has provided the means for them to be healed. They have to gaze upon Right? The image of the serpent that afflicts them and exercise faith in God's mouthpiece, who is Moses. And as a result of exercising that faith, they experience healing. God alone is the physician. So that is a very quick and somewhat dirty theology of sickness as it's employed in the Old Testament. Sickness can be the result of sin, often is in the Old Testament, but isn't necessarily that changes in the New Testament. Right? Sickness is a metaphor to describe the brokenness of this world. And right, where do you go for healing? There's only one stop, and that's God himself. So you need to keep all of this in mind to some extent as we begin to enter the New Testament and now understand, okay, what does it mean to be healed? What does it mean to be healed, not only of literal sickness, but of this metaphorical sickness that describes the brokenness in which we exist? What happens at the cross? Well, this is what, just what Jesus is describing to Nicodemus in John 3. Nicodemus, a religious leader, is trying to understand if Jesus is the Messiah and what that means, what, it's bringing, what Jesus is bringing to the table in a sense. And he can't get his mind wrapped around it because Jesus has said, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, what, you, I have to crawl back in my mother's womb and be born again? What are you talking about? And Jesus goes on, and he references the story of the bronze serpent. In verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is making two points here. The first point is that Nicodemus is absolutely helpless. Right? He doesn't have the ability in and of himself, to be born again. He's totally reliant upon God to exercise that reality. He also must look to the Son of Man in faith when he's lifted up, as the Israelites had to look to the bronze serpent when it was lifted up in faith in order to experience healing. Nicodemus has no resource in and of himself, and that healing, the second point, is that healing only comes through faith. Real, substantive healing. Healing of the deep brokenness that results from the fall. That's the kind of healing, of course, that Jesus is talking about. Now, why would Jesus reference this story? To go back for just a moment, you know, it's kind of an odd story. Right? The, the serpents come upon the people and they repent. Why doesn't God just heal them? Why this whole business with making a bronze serpent and putting it on a pole, which eventually, right, it's still, it's the symbol for our modern medical community the serpent wrapped around a pole. What, what was the point? Well, in the ancient world, they, they used something that we call today sympathetic magic. And the idea of this was 
that when you had some affliction, something coming upon you, or you were sick and had some poison, if you knew what it was, you could make an image of that thing and appeal to it so that what was afflicting you might be placed upon the image. So you make, you're afflicted by the snakes, you make an image of the snakes, and you look upon the snake and the idea that the poison that has come in you will go upon the image and as a result be transferred away from you. You see this as well when the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and they return it because once they have the Ark, God afflicts them with tumors and with rats. So what do they do? They make golden tumors and rats and return it with the Ark. And the idea is that what has come upon them will be transferred to these objects uh, as they have made them. And so you have really uh, this to a certain degree, a notion of this as Jesus goes up on the cross. We look upon him in faith the, what has poisoned us, sin, is transferred upon him, right, that we might be healed. Uh, both Paul and Peter will draw on the New Testament to make this point, saying, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. As Jesus is lifted up on the cross and dies, we experience healing by looking upon him in faith. This is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Wonderful. Jesus heals us. It's got really a complete sense to it in the New Testament. So how healed do you feel? How healed are the people around you? Right? We, we, we experience a certain bro- ongoing brokenness, a certain lack of healing, and lots of sickness around us. What are we talking about when we talk about Jesus actually healing something. Well, we have to talk about the great pivot to which I referred earlier in which when you look at the Old Testament, sickness tends to be a penalty for sin. But when you come to the New Testament, sickness or suffering becomes not a penalty for sin, but very often a means of grace. It's a a profound change. It's really quite remarkable. When you see the early apostles suffering for persecution, they don't say, uh, Jesus, how did we sin and why are we suffering? They say, thank you that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name. And of course, the New Testament authors explain this to us. Paul in Romans 5 writes, uh, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul celebrates his suffering. Why? Because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In other words, Paul says, I'm being made new as a result of my suffering. Peter will say something similar. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter celebrating? The suffering, the trials, the sickness that may come upon you is no longer this penalty necessarily for sin. What is it? It's a furnace. It's a furnace, the kind of hot smelting furnace in which you would stick a, uh, a piece of metal filled with impurities so that it would be purified. And the impurities would come out and you would, you would hammer it into something more beautiful and something that's stronger. Peter says that's now how sufferings and sickness works. It is God's tool by which to make us new, 
by which to see the old man put to flesh and see our new man emerge more and more. And the danger for us, of course, is not that we would, we would run away from that furnace and so desire quickly to appeal to whatever alleviates our circumstance. And did you notice the little passage in 2 Kings? You know, the bronze serpent story might have been relegated to the tombs of history had not it been revived both by Jesus when he's dialoguing with Nicodemus, but also in 2 Kings where Hezekiah becomes king. He's a good king and he's knocking down all the idols. And what is one of the things he has to destroy? The very bronze serpent through which God brought healing. It's become an idol. They've personified it. They've named it Nehushtan. And they worship it. Rather than worshiping the creator, they've turned to the thing created. Rather than worshiping the healer, they worship the tool that he used to heal. And so often we will follow suit when we appeal to something that might alleviate our circumstances rather than going to God himself. Why would the Israelites continue to appeal to the bronze serpent? Obviously, they would have confessed, it wasn't the serpent that healed us, it was Yahweh. But as life goes on and becomes miserable, they say, well, maybe we can just appeal to this serpent. It expects a lot less than Yahweh. And maybe we can make deals with Nehushtan and he'll deliver healing for us on our terms rather than actually having to meet God's terms. And when we turn to anything for healing, when we turn for anything for peace and comfort and prosperity, and think of it apart from the, from the true healer, God himself, and we seek to make a deal with it, that it will deliver what we want. We participate with our fathers in sin. You might as well name it Nehushtan. Instead, we see the creator who hangs himself on the cross. And as he does so, we are still left with the question, why do I not experience greater healing? And why do the people I pray for to be healed, do they not experience greater healing? Well, there are many ways we can approach this, but one is certainly that um, many ministers, C.S. Lewis being one of the most prominent, have pointed out that when we pursue God in the midst of our suffering and sickness, We glorify him in a way that could not be done otherwise. And as a result of bringing him that glory, we become who we are intended to be. What does that look like? I'll give you three examples. First of all, we glorify God himself when we continue to worship him and pursue him in faith, even though he is permitting sickness or suffering to come upon us. Many of you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot, a famous missionary whose husband Jim Elliot dies in an attack on five missionaries in South America. Well, Elliot would go forward and she returned to South America to continue that ministry in that part of the world. But in 1966, she wrote a novel. And the novel was called No Graven Image. And in the novel is a character named Margaret Sparhawk which is actually based on Elliot herself. But Sparhawk is a female missionary. She's looking forward to going to the mission field. She has dreamed of participating in the translation of God's word into the language of indigenous peoples. And she arrives finally on the mission field, having engaged in all this preparation. 
and she meets the one person who is essential to her project, who is Pedro. He is the translator, and he will enable her to bring God's word to bear upon these people who have never been reached before. But as she arrives, she realizes that Pedro is suffering a raging infection in his leg. Not to worry, Margaret is a trained nurse, and so she has penicillin and a syringe and immediately administers penicillin to his leg, at which point he goes into severe anaphylactic shock, right? allergic to penicillin, and begins to convulse and froth at the mouth, and the, the family is wailing and despairing, and Margaret is sitting there praying, God, you have to save this person. The, your project isn't going to go forward. You brought me here. You have to do this at which point Pedro dies. And the book, remarkably, ends in, uh, with an almost unresolved place. Margaret, the missionary, is very unsure about what she thinks about God. She's very unsure about how to process what has happened. And in, in the book, she, uh, the character uh, speaks or thinks, And God, what of him? I am with thee, he had said, with me in this. He had allowed Pedro to die, or, and I could not then, nor can I today, deny the possibility, he had perhaps caused me to destroy him. And does he now, I ask myself there at the graveside, ask me to worship him? A bit of an unsettling ending to a Christian book. Really, uh, interestingly, the book was not well received, particularly by the Christian community. Uh, a number of people wrote, uh, essentially, that God would never allow this to happen. Right? A, a missionary praying for this person to be healed so that the word could go to an unreached people group, God wouldn't let this happen. Now remember, the book is actually based, uh, essentially, it's a shadow of what actually happens to Elliot when she goes back to South America. Right? One book publisher even came up to Elizabeth Elliot and said, uh, proudly, I made sure that your book did not make our books of the year list, you know, our 10 or 25 books of the year list. Okay. Why? People couldn't process, God can't do this sort of thing. But what are you saying when you say that? God gets to be God when he's doing what you want him to do? God gets to be God when you approve of how he's acting? Right? Elliot went on to reflect in this fashion. We know that time and again in the history of the Christian church, the blood of martyrs has been its seed. We are tempted to assume a simple equation here. Five men died, referring to the five, including her husband, that were killed in South America. This will mean X number of Waroni Christians, the tribe they were ministering to. Perhaps so. Perhaps not. God is God. I dethrone him in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It is the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. There is unbelief, there is even rebellion in the attitude that says God has no right to do this to five men unless, unless what? God gets to decide what happens. And Elliot's saying, what is she saying? For her character, Sparhawk, she's alienated from God because God has done something that she can't process. She doesn't seem to be part, she doesn't understand or want to allow to be part of her story. No, God, you couldn't go there. And what Elliot's saying is anytime we make that decision, we dethrone God and we pretend that we know better than he does. But in the midst of actually suffering, in the midst of seeing Pedro dying or in the midst of engaging any extreme loss that is difficult to process in the light of God's goodness and his sovereignty, it is only in that place of faithful obedience that we glorify him 
and honor him as God. We don't dethrone him. So it's the first way we glorify God directly. Secondly, we glorify God to others. You will remember in October 2006, or at least many of you will, that a uh, lone gunman walked into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and shot 10 individuals, five of whom died, uh, being children and one school ch- one, um, one teacher. And you may also remember that it captured the attention of uh, the entire country. Right? Why? Do you remember why? Right? Of course, it was, a, it was an awful and scandalous uh, event. It was incredibly tragic and sad. But what captured the imagination of the country was that within hours, the Amish community was at the home of the parents of the shooter who had taken his own life and were expressing sympathy and forgiveness and trying to help them process what had occurred. The country said, who are these people? Who are these people that go immediately to tend the needy, even in the midst of their own incredible and enormous loss? It's really quite interesting, as the country tried to process it, there was a a made-for-television movie. And in that movie, they created a character. It was an Amish woman, and she became very angry with God. She became consumed with notions or imaginations of vengeance. And she desired to, she, she kind of acted like, I'm not going to worship a God who acts in this manner. Now, what's fascinating is in, with interviews with the Amish community, said they would be very honest and say, yeah, we struggled. This was very difficult to process. But there's no one in our community who's like this character. In other words, the secular culture making a movie had to create a character that was nothing more than a salve for their conscience and their inability to process this level of grace. They didn't want to go to a place that said, this grace could only be exhibited by people who are informed by the cross. In fact, sociologists went on to write about the event, and they said, this is just one of those times where you see the best of humanity come forward. And other Christian thinkers would push back and say, you are totally underestimating the degree to which these people are informed by a God who comes to die for them, their enemies. And what are they now compelled to do? To exercise grace toward their enemies. To exhibit that same kind of forgiveness to embody the cross in that way. And, but what you saw in that moment as people struggled with that event was that God's uh, glory was extended through the entire nation, if not the world. Because people wrestled with the people who were willing to identify with the cross in that capacity. We also, thirdly, glorify God uh, to the powers. What do I mean by that? Many of you have heard the story of Joni Erickson Tata, a woman long serving in Christian ministry and speaking to many and uh, was rendered a paraplegic, uh, no, rendered a quadriplegic in a diving accident as a teenager when she broke her neck hitting a rock submerged under the water. You may not be as familiar with Denise Walters, who was one of uh, Joni Erickson Tata's very close friends, as uh, Erickson Tata was originally coming, um, was in a uh, kind of a hospital that was geared to deal with these kinds of severe injuries, she was uh, with a group of other people who had suffered similar debilitating injuries. Denise Walters was a typical high school student in Baltimore, Maryland, was uh, busy and active as it goes, but one day she was uh, bounding up the stairs at school and her knees hurt. And by the end of school, she was having trouble walking. 
She went home and laid down, and by the time she woke up for dinner that night, she was paralyzed from the waist down, and the next day she was paralyzed from the neck down, and shortly after that she went blind. She had contracted an incredibly rare and very aggressive form of multiple sclerosis. And she was in the ward with Eric Sentada. And they were part of a group of people who were suffering horrific, tragic events or conditions and reading God's word together and praying together. And Denise was very, a very close friend of Eric Sentada's. Uh, but it wouldn't be long before Denise would die. And this was incredibly difficult for Eric Sentada. She said, you know, um, I can go, still go forward. It's really funny, you know, even to hear how Eric Sentada would would phrase why it was difficult. She, she saw her own tragedy, but she said, I can still go forward and, and engage a life of, mist, of ministry and testimony to God. But uh, Denise died in a hospital room and no one will know of her death. It doesn't, this was pointless. You know, she kind of raged against God. There is no redemptive aspect to this tragedy and to this death. And so they're, they're reading scripture, they're talking about it as a group, and eventually they come to Ephesians 3.10. And Ephesians 3.10 essentially says that the manifold wisdom of God is put on display before the principalities and powers, where? In the church. The church is the place that God displays, utterly counterintuitively to us, right? In the, your midst, God displays... Uh, his wisdom to the principalities and powers. And Joni at that point said, oh, that's it. Denise may have not been an exhibition of God's wisdom and grace to other human beings apart outside of this room, but she was to the principalities and powers. It was a display of God's manifold wisdom to them. And she goes on to, uh, to suggest, you know, who, uh, if, you know, if you were to wake tomorrow and you knew ahead of time that your entire day was going to be filmed for the rest of the church or the rest of the community to watch, right? Would that affect the decisions that you make during the day? Would that affect what you do during the day, right? Tana says, when we realize that everything we're doing is not only an exhibition of God's wisdom to one another, but is an exhibition of the wisdom to the principalities and powers, it totally transforms, right? Not only the hope that we have, but the responsibility with which we engage what is before us, right? And so in our faithfulness in the midst of sickness and suffering, we bring glory uh, to the powers as well. Glory to God himself, glory to others and to the world, glory to the powers themselves. And in that we are made new. I will remind you of 1 Peter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We started today with the story of Mark and Martha, and we'll end with the story of Mark and Martha. Mark was the man who had contracted at 47 Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, eventually was um, unable to move anything but his eyes, and uh, that's actually how he writes what I'm reading to you. He works with a screen that sees, somehow responds to his, the visual cues of his eyes. And uh, since then, well, Mark will write this. Uh, recently, I've been diagnosed with a terminal liver disease. 
Sometimes I say that I am unfairly suffering, but the only one who went through suffering unfairly was Jesus. His separation from the Father on the cross is far beyond anything I could ever experience. How can I complain when he went through that cosmic pain for me? I remember a pastor relating the story of a man who was terminally ill and who told him that the sweetness of his life with God as a result of his illness, he wouldn't trade for more years. I have found that to be true in my life as well. And this is Martha, after commenting on how God had graciously met her in the surreal experience of picking out the place that her husband would be buried. We have found meaning, purpose, joy, growth, and wholeness in our loss. But how much, I, how much I would have missed if I had opted out of this season. God has had so much to give me in the midst of it. I see how intense sorrow and intense sweetness are mingled together. The depth and richness of life has come in suffering. How much I have learned and how much sweeter Jesus is to me now. I think most of the world, and perhaps part of your heart, would comment that Mark did not receive any healing. I think from the perspective of the cross, Mark and Martha are far more healed than most of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for your suffering on the cross, we praise you this morning. We thank you that you were willing to enter the sickness and suffering of this world and not only to enter into it, but to take it upon yourself. We praise you that you allowed the poison of this world to be poured out on you, that we might be made new. It is by your wounds that we are healed and we give thanks for your grace in this today. We ask that we would look with faith upon the Son of Man who was raised upon the pole. As we come to your table this morning, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.